1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? New York City, 50 years from today. Nothing runs, nothing works. They gave me a quarter of a kilo. But people are the same, and people will do anything to get what they need. What they need most is Soylent Green. Simonson, board of directors of the Soylent Corporation, murdered because he discovered the secret of Soylent Green. Detective Thorne, he's got to find out what Simonson knew. Saul Roth, Thorne's researcher. Courtesy of your next assignment, William R. Simonson, Chelsea Towers West. When how'd you get all these? Cheryl, the furniture. Is that Simonson? Is that a yes nod or a no nod? Yes. Hatcher, police captain. Simonson. Supposed to look like he was killed when he caught some punk burglarizing his apartment. Well, what do you say? It was an assassination. Tab Fielding, bodyguard. Why would you leave that door open? Why did you set up Simonson? Charlton Heston, Edward G. Robinson, Lee Taylor Young, Chuck Connors. Fight for survival and solve the most bizarre riddle ever to face mankind. This is the police. I'm asking you to disperse. The supply of Soylent Green has been exhausted. Why does Soylent Green mean life? You must disperse. The scoops are on their way. Why does Soylent Green mean death?
Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spitaro, and it is 2022, which means the most popular food in the land is Soylent Green. Uh, <laughs> and I have, as such, invited my friends Darren and Ruth Sutherland and Ron Randall to join me to talk about this movie. How you doing, guys? Great. Hey, happy to be here. Hey, good to talk to you all. As always, I'm happy to have you here, and I appreciate you making the time to talk to me. Now, I'm gonna before we even talk about this movie at all, I'm going to put out there because I had just thought everybody knew about this movie, and I'm gonna tell a story in a couple of minutes that's gonna <laughs> tell you why I've come to a different conclusion. Uh, so, if you haven't seen this movie, I would strongly recommend that you see it if you're a, a fan of science fiction movies, and if so, turn off this podcast now because we're gonna spoil the heck out of it. And come back after you've watched it, because I think it's worth doing so. So we'll wait for you to get back, okay? <laughs> All right. So now, in my that's, office, we have... That, that's, I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, Darren. I'm sorry, Paul. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was just going to say, that's really quite a uh, uh, a bit of a teaser. You're going to spoil Soylent Green. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, but anyway, go on. I'm sure your story was going to be much more interesting than my pathetic pun. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not so sure anymore. But uh, in in my office, we have one of one of the uh, office managers who tries to make things a little bit more fun for everybody. So she'll send out riddles and questions, and you know, get surveys of you know polls for different things. You know, what do you like better? So last week she she sent out the question: uh, if if a red house is made out of red bricks and a yellow house is made out of ye yellow bricks, what's a greenhouse made out of? So being the wise guy that I am, I went online and I found the movie poster for Soylent Green, and I <laughs> sent that as, as my answer to the question. Uh, Excellent. And, and I was shocked with how many people in my office sent back, what is that? Is that, you know, that's a movie? I never heard of it. <laughs> so apparently a lot of people are not familiar with Soylent Green, but the thing that really jumped out at me was looking at the poster. It says right at the top, it's the year 2022. Mm. And, I, you know, this this was made in, in 1973, I believe. So it was, uh, you know, the far flung future uh, to go mm. to 2022. Uh, but since it is 2022 in the movie, I decided, why don't we talk about this? And I threw it out to you guys. And I got to say, I got a real enthusiastic response, which I thought was cool. <laughs> now, yes. I, I saw this at 10 years old in the movie theater mm. twice. Mm. And I'm curious what you guys, and, and you know what, I'll give even my experience with that before I go to get your guys' experience. I think at 10 years old, I really didn't even get what, exactly what was going on in this movie because sometimes these procedural, police procedurals, I just kind of like mm -hmm. let it sweep me where it's going to sweep me. And I still do this to this day. And I, mm -hmm. I like, it's like he'll start interviewing somebody and I'm like, why is he interviewing this person? I don't even know why, but you know, I'll just roll, roll with it. So. I don't know how much I really understood of what was going on when I saw this at 10 years old, uh, but just the same, I really enjoyed the action of it. I enjoyed just the, the tone, and like I said, I saw it twice. It was worth seeing again, so uh, it's been you know, on my nostalgia list ever since because that's what happens, uh, mm -hmm. but I'm curious how, you know, how the three of you have seen this and what your experiences were. Um, you, who goes first? Well, you, you <laughs> spoke first, so you go. <laughs> okay, well, uh, yeah, I also, uh, I saw it 
out uh, in the movie theater when it first came out. And Paul, I'm so um, so happy to hear you make your little confession about when you watch some of these sort of procedural shows that a lot of times you may not be following all the what this clue leads to or the significance of this interview, and you're just sort of caught up in the you know, the, the the actors doing their thing or the overall feeling of the movie, you're sort of swept up in it, because that is me exactly. Um, and when I saw it as a kid, um, I, I, I uh, wasn't as uh, caught up in the trying to get to the, the, the bottom of the whodunit or the whatever, you know, but uh, the overall feeling of the movie uh, and the overall, I guess I'd say, the overarching mess, message did, did seem to hit pretty solidly with me and it certainly was a movie that left a huge lasting impact um and uh so i've I've remembered it very fondly ever since honestly i don't remember i remember very distinctly seeing it in the movie theater when it's first released i don't know if i ever even have seen it again since then so Mm. re-watching it for this conversation was a huge treat um Mm. for me yeah that's really interesting. I appreciate hearing that. This is one of the movies I didn't see in the theater when it was new. Um, when I was growing up there in the early 70s, the town, well, Ruth and I are both from the same hometown, but we certainly didn't know each other then. But uh, in the early 70s, the only theater in our hometown was a, a small indi- or small uh, second-run movie theater that was only open on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays, and uh, one screen, and only got second-run films. So it didn't get uh, films when they were coming through new. So sometimes uh, a movie would come through finally, just before it would finally air on TV. So um, I didn't see this one. I remember seeing, you know, I've been, I remember in the early 70s, you know, being excited to get to see James Bond at the theater, getting to see uh, <laughs> some of the Planet of the Apes movies at the theater. You know, I'd seen the earlier ones on TV, and it was great getting to see the later ones in the cinema. But this I didn't see. This is a movie I can remember being advertised on TV and and looking forward to it and finally getting to see it on TV. So for me, it was a mid 70s TV, you know, network, I'm sure network primetime airing that I finally got to see it. And it stuck with me. I mean, I think uh, being of the age uh, and I, I remember hearing the two of you talk about, you know, sort of those late 60s, early 70s sci fi movies like this and Logan's Run and some others. It's sort of the pacing is they're all sort of very similar in pacing and suspense and that template just clicks for me. So silent mm. running was a perfect fit for me and it stuck with me then. And I've remembered it ever since I haven't seen it much. I've seen it more than you have Ron. I've mm-hmm. seen it, uh, you know, two or three times over the years, including most recently for this. Okay. So I'm just going to, just going to ask you down just cause you, you mentioned silent running just now. Uh, <laughs> it's, we, we are talking soil and green though, right? <laughs> we, are, we are talking soil and green. I, I meant to say, uh, I meant to say, talking about movies from the early, um, late sixties and early seventies, like uh, okay. Logan's Run. Oh, okay, I would, I would just hate to get like three quarters into this, and, and you're talking about what Bruce Stern <laughs> did. Or no, no, I'm not going to talk about Silent Running. You two already talked about Silent Running. For what, it's, that, for what so. it's worth, now, uh, I, I've mentioned before that, that Ruth and Darren introduced me to Ron, so this kind of <laughs> makes makes for the circle. But uh, Darren, Darren sent Ron and I a message yesterday, kind of critiquing our take on Silent Running. Uh, and if you listen to Silent, the Silent Running episode, Ron and I like pretty much agreed on everything. It was we were totally in lockstep on everything. And it's probably the first time since 
Darren and I have become friends that we disagreed on anything. <laughs> and he, he basically, you know, he said it in much nicer terms, but he basically said, you guys don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so that's why I thought maybe he got confused and thought we were back on silent running because we did talk about that before we started recording. It's just, it's such a thorn in my side. I couldn't get it. <laughs> but we, we, we disagree so rarely. So uh, how about you, Ruth? Do you have any memory of the first time you saw this? I caught it on television, uh, so I didn't see it in the theaters uh, when it came out. But I do have a fond memory of maybe 10 or so years ago, a local science museum has a little theater, and they aired it one evening. So ah. I got to see it on the screen with a crowd and that was appreciating it. Uh, so glad. that that was a nice memory. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, that's uh, the local science museum here used to show friday night movies about once a quarter it wasn't every week but like once a quarter and we saw this there we saw omega man there as well uh, uh, so yeah another one of those movies from that period mm -hmm, of time. absolutely fits right in the the uh the genre mm -hmm. so, so one of the things i, I find interesting well I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually back off that for a second one of the things i really found interesting watching re-watching it for today was in the opening montage seeing all the people walking around wearing masks mm -hmm. and i thought yes. oh maybe they weren't as far off on the prediction of the future as i thought you know <laughs> uh that that really just kind of it was almost disturbing in its own way because it you know that has come to pass you know the people were walking yeah. around wearing masks but uh, i thought the same thing you know it's when you see movies about the future uh, especially if it's a dystopian movie. Usually, you know, you see the scenes that that we saw of the overcrowding and all of that stuff. But in general, when you see movies about the future, they are, you know, they usually show everything being really slick uh, and automated and everything. And and this doesn't really have that. The technology hasn't really advanced. This is certainly an, an alternate timeline from what we have, thank God. Uh <laughs> But, you know, the the one thing that they I thought they did really well was to show the distinction between the haves and the have nots. Yes. You know, but but even the haves live a somewhat Spartan lifestyle compared to what, you know, thankfully, again, you know, what our world has progressed to, you know, that the one scene early on when uh, uh, they're, they're shopping and uh, the guy pulls out, you know, he's all excited because he's got a piece of steak. Uh, and then they, mm -hmm. they show a close-up of it, and it looks, you know, it's fatty, and it looks a little almost moldy, and, you know, they're all excited just at the prospect of it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, That was so, one of the things that stuck out the most to me and Ruth when we were watching it is just, you know, really showing the uh, disparity between the haves and the have-nots. But you're right, Paul. It's like even the haves don't have as much as we might think, but, boy, the have-nots have nothing. Oh, yeah, I, I, they do a really good job, you know, just showing the people sleeping on the stairs of the building. And then there's a guy sitting at the top of the stairs with a gun to, to protect them while, you know, while they sleep. Uh, right. You know, and just just the, you know, the overpopulation and the lack of food and the, the poor uh, environment and everything. It, it's just, you know, it, it's definitely not a an uplifting movie by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you know, no. One thing I thought that they did so uncannily well is they they projected fifty years into the future, and they didn't populate it with flying cars mm -hmm. and and people living in you know floating cities and going around dressed mm -hmm. in slick um, fashion and stuff. It was mm -hmm. it was just like the Manhattan of the time, just even more crowded. 
Mm-hmm. And that is so much closer to the reality that we have today <laughs> than so many other movies that were made trying to trying to project 50 years in the future. Uh, soberly so, depressingly so, I, I felt. Um, I just look at that, and you know, I spent some time in New York back in those days, um, and the city got cleaned up some between then and uh, later, but I don't know where, I can't speak to how... Well, the condition of the city is right now, but uh, I mean, there's a lot of stuff there where I could say, yep, I know exactly what it would smell like walking down a street like that. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, yeah. I know that smell, too. But, <laughs> and uh, there's not that many science fiction movies where you can say that about. Uh, it, I mean, to me, it just it seemed it seemed so vivid to me uh, uh, and uh, grounded in a, in a depressing degree of accurate, accurate forecasting. Well, like, like, ex- such a good- exaggerate, exaggerated, but still, in general, I mean, there was a lot that felt very connectable, I guess, is a way to put it. That's a really good point, Ron. I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'll just throw this in there because I know Ron is also a fan of Blade Runner, which is one of my all-time favorite films. But you know, that's set in 2019, and you know, 2019 was nothing like that. This <laughs> this movie is much closer to 2022 than Blade yeah. Runner is to 2019, even though you know I still love Blade Runner. Yeah, no, I, 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 don't, I don't know too many people who are going to. Uh, have pro- a problem with that thought but uh i mean thankfully things aren't nearly as bleak as what they showed there uh but you know one, one of the things the first things i took note of was you know when this when the montage ends they tell you new york city population 40 million and, mm-hmm. and i said you know what i honestly don't know what the population of new york city is so mm-hmm. i asked siri and she told me that as of 2018 which i guess is the last time they, mm-hmm. that they had a census i guess uh it was nine million yeah so thankfully it's not nearly as high as what yeah and paul there. i gotta tell you i did exactly the same thing when i saw that stat coming up and i said what is the population New York? so, so I did, we had exactly the same reaction we needed to double check that yeah yeah well, that's a hundred percent and and i'll, I'll tell you right i'll tell you when i've been in in new york city in recent years i'm, I'm not a big fan of the city itself just because i prefer a more suburban life but not because the city you know not because of any problem with the city itself just my own personal uh preferences but in in the times i've been in the city in in recent years it is much cleaner than it had been in say the 80s or the 70s Mm -hmm. yeah that's good (laughs) so I'll, i'll give it that at least i don't know i've only been there i would say i've only been there twice since the pandemic began uh and i really didn't wander the streets very much so i i don't know if things have gone you know the other way in in the last couple of years with you know the the businesses struggling and whatever else was going on mm-hmm. uh, but it's it's definitely a lot better than what we see in this movie at least thankfully <laughs> yeah thankfully yeah, yeah. so that you know <laughs> the, there's there's certain uh I, you know ron we were talking when we talked about silent running about the uh you know masking real issues in science fiction uh, mm-hmm. And making you think about it, and I think this this movie definitely, uh, and it, they don't mask it all that heav- heavily, uh, but this movie definitely has you know a lot of issues with you know the the global warming, with the overpopulation, with uh, class struggles, with euthanasia, but it, it's you know there's a lot going on in this movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And and the first one that I mentioned and is probably the most concerning still today is the global warming issue uh mm-hmm. and i'm not you know i i you know you guys know me i'm not that big into the social causes and all of that but uh 
I've seen different te- different data on what's going on, and I've seen different opinions as to what's going on. But all I know is if if it's going to be what they're saying, you know, it's it's really scary. And when they show that on the screen, if nothing else, it it gives you a little awareness to say, hey, you know, what is that all about? <laughs> and and that's, mm-hmm. that, I, like again, I don't want to get preachy about it, so it's just you know something to think about. Uh, and and it's you know, it's a little scary in this movie. Yeah, it is. And uh, again, I think that's one of those things where, you know, um, they they um, they didn't uh, flinch from it. And to me, the, the, the depressing thing about it was th- this was something I mean, it's it, in a way it's touched on in, in Silent Running as well. You know, uh, the the Earth uh, in that movie is no longer able to support, you know, a lot of uh, botanical life. So it's circling in orbit. Um and so these issues about global warming, the greenhouse effect, all that sort of stuff, this has been bandied around in popular culture for 50 years. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and look where we are today. Uh, uh, we may not be living in quite as crowded as New York is. The seas may not be completely devoid of life as they virtually are in this movie. Um but, you know, look at how much of Europe is on fire right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, it's uh, the, you know, the all we, we all the all the do- well documented effects, you know, what's going on with, in the Antarctic and what's going on in the Arctic and what's going on um, in India and, and uh, across the globe. This is happening. I live in the Pacific Northwest where the, the fire season is is hardly a season anymore. It's mm-hmm. it's it's a fire environment. Um Anyway, like you said, I don't want to get too uh, preacher stuff about this, but when you watch a movie like Sterling Green, it's really that's what it's about. You're not talking about the movie if you're not, you know, if you're not addressing that. Yeah, right. exactly. I mean, it's 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 really in your face. This movie's very much in your face. So if you're if you're not going to talk about those things, you really can't talk about this movie because it, you know, that's so much of what they are. But I, I find that really interesting about this film, and it's another example of how it sort of predicted so many things or at least you know within a realm of reality because you know it's talking about global warming which with global warming comes sea rise and yet one mm-hmm. of the biggest things we learn about this movie is well just because the sea is rising doesn't mean that this the sea can continue to feed the population which is what's so mm-hmm. important about this and um and such a big you know part of the twist so i really it's compelling yeah yeah, it's it's you know, it's just something where I don't know that we have the answers, and certainly, let's just uh, without getting again, I don't want to get too political, but there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of hypocrisy out there. Let's just put it that way. Uh, but I do think it's something that people should just kind of be aware of, and, and the government should be aware of, and it should say, you know, let's let's see what we can legitimately find out for sure about this stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Because I think there's too much politicizing of every issue right nowadays, and that's the end of my political rants. Fair enough. Uh, so, but you know, to to go the next step on this, and again, not to pass any political thoughts on it, but it certainly creates the the class uh, distinction between the poor and the, the haves and the have-nots, so to speak. And you know, it's one thing to show. The people who live in comfortable apartments and then the people who are, you know, again, 40 people on a staircase sleeping on the floor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that, that you know, creates a very uh, strong distinction. But the thing that I think really I took home with this is the 
the fact that the people who do have, even uh, somebody who has a modest life like Charlton Heston in this movie, uh, there are people who are considered possessions to them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, you know the, the 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 people who serve them are called furniture, uh, mm-hmm. and in you know in in the case of Charlton Heston who plays Robert Thorne, uh, he has Edward G. Robinson who is amazing in this movie by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. He lives with him, and obviously they have a very very close relationship the two, but uh, Edward G. Robinson is called a book. Because he has yeah. so much knowledge, and that's his purpose is just to provide that knowledge to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, him, he, he, and, and Robert Thorne have created a, a relationship where you know, uh, a, a, you know, non-sexual love uh, between them to the point. You know, I, I don't know if it's father and son or if it's like brothers or whatever it is, but but they're really, you know, they are very very close. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was actually Edward G. Robinson's last movie. And he, if I understood correctly, he passed away between when they finished filming and when it came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he apparently had been uh, suffering with some form of cancer during the time. And Charlton Heston came out and said, "No one knew it while they were filming this movie. He knew it, but he mm-hmm. didn't. He didn't share that with anyone. And he, you know, he had his energy level." And, and he kept, you know, doing everything. And I, th- I think they said when he, when they finished filming, he passed away like two weeks later. So it wasn't, wow. you know, it wasn't like he was uh, in a period of strong remission or anything like that. So you, you got to mm-hmm. love uh, just his, his attitude towards this. And, you know, you, I, I, I had never made the comparison in my mind of Charlton Heston and Edward G. Robinson having been in uh, the Ten Commandments together. Uh, oh, yeah. And, and oh. like that hadn't occurred to me until I was watching this this week. And I thought, what what a difference. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't think he was nominated for anything. But in all seriousness, Edward G. Robinson should have been nominated for supporting actor for this movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I Definitely. Think, I think at that time they didn't take science fiction movies as seriously yeah, I think that's probably you, Paul. I think you have your finger on something right there. I think the genre probably worked against it, unfortunately. Yeah. And oh, just to just to take the relationship between them uh, a step further, uh, he was originally supposed to play Doctor Zaius in Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that. So that's they, there are actually some screen test shots. You know, I, I think they're actually like makeup test, uh, uh-huh. but there are some some uh, videos out there. If you, if you look on YouTube, I'm sure you could find them. Uh, but you know, I, I, I suspect that the two of them had a very close personal relationship, even though Charlton Heston says he was unaware that Edward G. Robinson had cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, they worked really well together on the screen. You could, you could see it in their performances. You know, I, I think, you know, as you say there, they, they had a, they were, they loved each other. And Mm -hmm. I mean, I was really stricken by this movie where you have, these two guys who are tough guys, you know, Charlton Heston plays a man's man in every movie he's in, right? And Edward G. Robinson is the Hollywood tough guy. Yeah, right. him, <laughs> and, him and, and James Cagney, the hand yeah, in hand. Cagney. And and they at, in this movie, in that in that just in the climactic scene of the movie, you know, when they say when he's when uh, when the book <laughs> says to Thorne, "I love you," and Charlton Heston, you know. He he um he just he, he feels that 
you know, you can see him feeling it. And then he managed to say it back to him, you know, and yeah. it's just like, and a couple of men's men don't say I love you to each other in movies very often. Yeah. And yeah. they just, they, but they were bold enough to, to, to do it. And I mean, that, that scene is one of the most powerful that, that I, you know, that I know of in movies. That was, you know, that was um, exactly the word I wanted to use was powerful. Yeah. And, um, the, everything, and that's one that I remembered vividly since I was a kid. I mean, they, the, the Beethoven six has never been so well deployed. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, the montage of the, the, the scenery there and, you know, uh, the, the, the red lighting or the orange lighting in the room and then Charlton Heston looking on from that control room is looking at, it's just, um, it is just so incredibly vivid and, and he's helpless, you know, he, he's the action hero he's helpless to see what's going on there and it just it just gives the movie all the weight in the world i think it's just a striking stunning scene well that's ron i'm so glad you you described that scene so well because i was thinking how am i going to bring up this scene because i wanted to <laughs> chime i wanted to chime in on something paul was saying just a moment ago about uh him passing away so soon after this movie that's one of the things i read about in in i don't remember now if it was on some extras or if i just read it but it mentioned that that was the last scene that Edward G. Robinson filmed Jeez. in this movie, and he died 12 days later. Hmm. So that's to me, that was just like, oh, my gosh, you know, he played that scene with so much emotion. And I wonder how much of that emotion was what he was really feeling himself, knowing mm -hmm. what he was going through. Uh, and then to be there with somebody that he had known and worked with for 20 years uh, yeah. in the industry it's it's just it's a beautiful scene and you're absolutely right uh, both of you about it uh, it's probably their relationship is probably the heart of this movie yeah. I, I, definitely. And, and it's almost hard to believe that he could even get through filming that scene knowing that he, knowing that where he was in his own issues with his own health and probably knowing approximately how much time he had left Right. That he right. was able to act out a scene of a character going through that same journey. Uh, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, go ahead. I was actually going to just say that to build on that a little further, that scene is all about euthanasia. Uh, yeah. And mm -hmm. I guess, you know, uh, they call him a book, but his name in the movie is Sal. And Sal has right. decided he's lived long enough and he doesn't want to deal with this anymore. And they actually have places where you could go and you sign up and they'll play beautiful music and show you beautiful films and they'll kill you. Uh, <laughs> and I assume painlessly, it seemed like he didn't have any pain in the way he went out. But I mean, that is something that our society has determined is wrong. Uh, and mm. it's against the law. And in mm. this instance with the overpopulation, I guess they've decided that, you know, the ends justify the means and that it's okay. If you're, if you're ready to go, we, you know, we will accommodate you. Uh, and then, you know, again, spoilers, if you haven't paid attention yet, <laughs> it also serves them the benefit of once they've done that, they can use your body to make more soil and green, <laughs> which is just, you know, you know, if there's anybody who stayed with us who hasn't watched the movie after the whole procedural is done, uh, Edward G. Robinson actually figures out that this food stuff that's going around is uh, is made from people's remains. And he lets Charlton Heston, uh, Thorne, 
uh, no, just before he passes away. And then Thorne goes through the final climactic battle uh, with Chuck Connors. Uh, and mm-hmm. then he, you know, he makes the declaration that it's made of people, which is something I can't imagine anybody who's over 30 not having at least seen something where they said <laughs> Soylent Green is people. Yeah. Right, very much a parody. You know, I think a lot of people may only know that parody line. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's like this movie is so so good and so relevant, mm-hmm. uh, and yet for I think there's was a generation of people. Maybe it was after our generation, but before the current generation. I think only knew comedians. You know, that would be one of the <laughs> things. You know, a comedian could just shout shout soy green as people, and everybody would laugh. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, you know, this movie shouldn't be laughed at. No. But uh, but now I think the current generation, Paul, is what you were talking about, uh, which is now people don't remember it at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I mean, I, I would think there would at least be memes out there, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you think, it, you think, it's yeah. up to you to start one now. Yeah, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> uh, a, a kind of a hidden performance for me because I didn't become aware of him as an actor till probably about 10 years later when I was around 20. And I started taking some mm-hmm. film classes, and I uh, saw some, uh, you know, some Orson Welles movies, some some Alfred mm-hmm. Hitchcock movies, and I, I really became, you know, much more of a a student of film as opposed to just a movie fan. Uh, mm-hmm. Joseph Cotton, right. what a great mm-hmm. actor through like the fifties, and you know, even even into the sixties, uh, and, and I guess even into the in the forties. Oh yeah, and, yeah. and in this, you know, he he plays kind of a small role, and mm-hmm. at again ten years old when I saw this, I would have no clue who Joseph Cotton was, uh, but you know, having seen things like Citizen Kane and uh, all of a sudden I'm just drawing a blank on the uh, Hitchcock one with Teresa Wright, uh, Shadow of a Doubt, uh, right. things like that that I that I've loved so much and I've seen what a really good actor he is now, mm-hmm. you know, in in in, I was going to say middle age, but late middle age, uh, I, I, I see him and I, and I can appreciate when he's on the screen and yeah. how powerful of an actor he is. In, in that way, to me, from my own personal experience, I liken him to William Holden, who, uh, mm-hmm. who I also was unfamiliar with as a kid, but then I became you know much more familiar over the years when I saw things like Starlog 13 and, and other things that he was in. Uh, and that, to me, there's a very similar presence about them. Yeah, I'd, I'd go along with that 100. percent Never the the sort of guy who who struck me as being the sort of the whatever you want to call it the the, the matinee idol sort of uh, leading role character. Um, the those are both actors who, in some ways, to me, always um, played the character role. They, they were sort of character role actors, even though sometimes they did get the lead in some movies, I suppose. But um, yeah, but uh, great. Great craftsperson. I'd, for, I'd totally forgotten that he was in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> I saw him on the scene when the when, when they go into the apartment. Oh, that's Joseph Cotton. What's he doing in this scene? <laughs> <laughs> well, I I don't know if you're going to mention the cast person next, Paul. That excited me the most because I didn't remember she was in it. But the the head of the library. Oh, yes. as, as soon as she spoke, I just got so excited. I turned to Ruth and said, Oh my. <laughs> It's uh, to Paul, is it? That's yeah, it's to Paul. Yeah. From Star Trek. <laughs> and to, and to go further with the Star Trek uh, connection, uh, I, I guess he's he's uh, 
Thorne's partner or his, I guess, I, no, actually, I guess it's his boss, is, uh, oh, yes. <laughs> is Brock right. Peters, mm-hmm. who uh, had two, two significant Star Trek roles. He played Cisco's father on Deep Space Nine, but he was also uh, a, a key part in, uh, was it was in, in the Voyage, no, not in the Voyage Home, in uh, Star Trek Six. Oh, the undiscovered country. In the undiscovered country, he had a key part. He was. And uh, for for those who may not know, he was he also was the voice of Darth Vader in the uh, in the radio adaptation of the right. of the Star Wars, the first Star oh, Wars. Oh, cool! Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I forgot about that. So there's definitely some geek connections here. Uh, <laughs> there really are. I, I find it ironic that that you know when we talk about the the big uh, reveal at the end that Charlton Heston gets to do this one and Planet of the Apes. Yes. Well, exactly. Yeah, I was gonna say you were talking about how you know there should be a meme of the Soylent Green as people, and you know, that's one of the, I guess one of the, the great things about the both these movies they they ended with wow finishes that had great taglines, great visuals, and it's just you know they're just iconic moments. Uh, you see that the the the, the, uh, the remains of the Statue of Liberty. Uh, poking out of the sand at the end of Planet of the Apes and you blew it up, you blew it up, you know, I just, it's just, uh, you, you see that movie once when you were a young lad speaking personally, and you never forget that moment. Absolutely. Or the end of this movie, but I, where he's being hauled out on that stretcher and he says, so the greatest people. And then they zoom into the close up of just his outstretched hand. Again, that's an image that I have not forgotten in the last 50 years, you know. <laughs> I, I have some heard some people criticize uh, Planet of the Apes for uh, making the cover of the DVD on certain issues. Uh, oh. Him on the beach with the Statue of Liberty there. It's like, what? Well, <laughs> Talk about a spoiler, yeah, right? If somebody hasn't seen this movie before, you just kind of really screwed them over. <laughs> yeah, true enough, true enough. Yeah, that's, that's not, I wouldn't have, that's not a good choice. <laughs> so th- this was... It, 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 just an interesting little trivia bit. This uh, was based on a novel called uh, Make Room, Make Room, which came out in 1966. Uh, mm-hmm. And there are a lot of differences, apparently, between the, the book and the uh, movie, uh, with the key one being that, that Soylent Green wasn't really the focus of the book. It was more talking about the mm-hmm. overpopulation and the people being used right. as furniture, and that type of thing. But uh, when they did adapt it for the screen... The reason they didn't use the original title, Make Room, Make Room, is because they were afraid people were going to think it was a big screen remake of Make Room for Daddy, the the, the Danny (laughs) Thomas TV show. (laughs) That's funny, but that is interesting. That's fascinating that they did certainly change the the thrust or the focus of the film, didn't they? And and that, again, to me, was like a parallel with Planet of the Apes, where, you know, the original novel didn't have it, it wasn't Earth in the original novel. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, the original novel is very different. I remember as a kid reading the novel for the first time and thinking, "Wait a minute, this is <laughs> yeah, same, same what with I was expecting." <laughs> same with me, and, and I, I had a tough time with this novel as a kid with Planet, the Planet of the Apes novel. I never read Make Room, Make Room, uh, but I had a tough time because it was so different. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I kept looking for you know the similarities to what I had seen on the screen and loved so much, and I wasn't getting it. But uh, back back to this again. Um, right. This apparently got kind of a mixed review. There were people who thought it was very insightful and interesting, and you know the commentary on on society was very good. And then there were those that just said it was kind of a boring police procedural. Mm. I'm certainly 
not with the latter. Um, mm-hmm. When I saw it as a kid, I found it to be a fascinating police procedural. And as an mm-hmm. adult, I'm much more in tune with the commentary on society. So mm-hmm. I don't, I don't kind of don't agree with either aspect of the negative on this. Yeah, I would, I would chime in, Paul, and say that I'm sort of in the middle of this too. To me, it's very interesting, and maybe it's because I'm such a film of a fan of film noir. And uh, so, to me, this this plays very much as like a film noir movie set in the future. And I even made the comment to Ruth when we were rewatching it. I said, you know, it's it's really very much like watching Mike Hammer in the future. You know, Mickey Spillane's Mike Hammer, mm-hmm. I can mm-hmm. imagine uh, in this role. But um, yeah, I don't. I, I definitely fall in between those two opinions. It. it it maybe is a little bit more police procedurally than you might expect from a science fiction tinged movie, but it's certainly not a uh, a bad or boring one. It's a uh, gripping, compelling one most of the time. I, I think so as well. I, I again, I didn't always follow the logic when they were doing things. The biggest thing, I guess, from a logistic point of view, that I have, you know, kind of still some lasting issues with is just the whole reason that the Joseph Cotton character is killed off is because they're concerned that he's going to reveal this secret that ultimately comes out at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And you would think if the powers that be do that, that they would find a way to prevent this investigation from even happening. Mm-hmm. And that, that's probably the biggest problem I had with, with the logistics of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, you clicked right on the big problem with it, Paul, because the truth of the matter is, is they would have had him killed and then just carry him off and he would have become soyant green before anybody noticed. Yeah. So, you know, but but then we wouldn't have had a movie. So. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, I mean, they, they I think they make some um, some effort at that. I mean, clearly um, the Brock Peters, uh, his lieutenant, um, he is. He has been, you know, they, they show a scene where he's in his office taking a call from Charlton Heston. And uh, then we see that the, the mayor is mm-hmm. sitting there in the room with him. So clearly the fix is supposed to be in and they're supposed to be calling him off the, the trail. Mm-hmm. But Heston won't go off it. And his lieutenant, I think, is torn because he appreciates Heston as being a good cop, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, at the end of the movie, when Heston is being carried away there, um, I remember when I saw it as a kid, I, my thing was, they're going to take him away and kill him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that was. I don't. I don't I, I, yeah, I don't know that this this secret actually gets out. Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly. So, so I, you know, I, I think you know the 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 powers of be were. I mean, they were they were sending out a team to gun him down. Yeah. <laughs> right. That was the cops that were trying to kill him. Assassination attempts. That wasn't that wasn't the bad guys. Well, it was, but it was the powers of be. So, um, uh, maybe the, you're maybe you're thinking as well. They they should have arranged it. To get rid of him earlier, well, they tried to assassinate him during the riot with that one guy using his silencer in that crowd scene. <laughs> he just kept shooting the wrong people. Um, uh, they just weren't so, as know, efficient as you would expect. For yeah, they just—it's I mean, like the stormtroopers; they can't hit anything. <laughs> I mean, you, you got—you you know, sometimes you gotta, I guess, give a little bit in order to to get the action into a movie like this. But uh, it seems—it seemed like it worked well. It didn't bother me enough to to really. Um, disturb me too much anyway i'll put it that way and uh you know hessen uh he's a movie star i mean you can't take your eyes out of that guy when he's in a room at least for me when he's in a room i'm falling around i'm watching the 
the, the the body language and the expression on his face and the you know the the size and the <laughs> the side glances and stuff it's all to me just it's fascinating stuff and so um again i wasn't caught up in all the ins and outs and the minutiae of the uh, the procedural stuff too much but i i got it. i i was i was going on pretty pretty well watching it this time cuz i knew where we were going yeah know? that makes it makes easier definitely but uh, the, the scenes were really good ones. In that, uh, one thing I just want to <laughs> I thought about this one. Going back to that that final the the, the scene where um, where uh, Saul is is being euthanized, um, I think this is a really amazingly powerful scene. And Charlton Heston is almost acting as well as Edward G. Robinson in this scene. <laughs> he, he's holding his own with Edward G. Robinson. That is not an easy thing to do, I wouldn't think, as an actor. So, because I think I, I think Heston is a great actor, but I don't think there's many Edward G. Robinsons out there. And uh, See, so, uh, you know, I, that does impress me. That's all I want to say. It's impressive. I, I think there's a, there's a different presence to each of them. Charlton uh, mm-hmm. Heston, when he's on the screen, it's almost like you're, like it's mandatory that you're focused on him. Uh, <laughs> He just has this presence and charisma about him that you have to, you know, you, 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 there's a command to him somehow. Yeah. Whereas Edward G. Robinson is, is a little bit more subtle. He, it's not that he can't chew up the scenery, but, but I think the reason he's so great in this movie is because he doesn't chew up the scenery. He, he, he's, you know, he's underplaying it to an extent. He's soft spoken, uh, and he's, you could see he's constantly thinking and, uh, there's, there's, you know, it's it's two very very different performances, but they blend together really really well. Uh, but I, I do agree with what you're saying because I I don't know that I've ever seen a Charlton Heston movie that when he's on the screen I'm not glued to him. Yeah, and some of you know he just he he was he was an incredible specimen. He was a I believe he was a male model before he became an actor. Um, he's got a physique, you know, and 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 he moves like a panther, you know. Yes, <laughs> he's yes. just. Um, and uh, you're right. Edward G. Robinson doesn't have those uh, sort of natural gifts going for him. He's a <laughs> shrumpy little guy, you know. But um, yeah, that voice and, and there's just something uh, just, just powerful that comes out of him when he when he talks and you pay attention. Yeah. And then I, I mean, I guess it's worth mentioning that the uh, lead female in this is uh, Lee Taylor Young, who uh, I can't tell you I've seen very much with her in it and off the top of my head I can't tell you anything else I've seen with her in it but I know I have <laughs> mm. uh, and and I do remember like in the late 70s her name being popular I don't remember mm. why <laughs> to be totally honest with you but I just I, like you know I'm familiar with her name uh, let me just click on her quick and see what other things she apparently became big she, she first came out in the 60s on Peyton Place Mm. Uh, Interesting. I'm just looking for movies that she was in. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of movies I'm familiar with, like, say, Jagged Edge, uh, Looker, which I seem to remember being a Susan Day movie, Uh, The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. Uh, (laughs) I mean, she was in movies I've heard of, but, you know, I I can't specifically picture her in it. she reminds me in many ways of like kind of the female lead in, in things like the night stalker, uh, Mm. even though, you know, very different actresses, but just kind of the same level of, of role. Apparently she was on evening shade or at least an episode of evening shade, Burt Reynolds TV show. So she was around for quite a while. Yeah. 
And her, her most her latest uh, credit that I can find on here is 2011, uh, something called The Way Shower, a movie called The Way Shower. Huh. It's interesting, yeah. It's she does a good job in this film with uh, the role she's given. It's it's a, a rather small role, but I mean, it's there's enough substance to it that you get some definitely nice personality, and she does a good job with the role. But I'm like you, Paul. I'm not very familiar with her myself. So, is there anything else as far as social commentary? Uh, Choices that had to be made. Anything else that we should just kind of explore before we call it a day on this? I'll just chime in on one thing, because just when I was just reading a little bit of trivia and stuff on the movie, and and like they said, Paul, it had some sort of mixed critical reviews, sort of like, you know, lots of positives, but, you know, almost an equal amount of negatives. But I thought it was funny that one of the reviewers talked particularly about the – the scoops that they used for crowd control <laughs> as being like the most absurd thing in that, you know, it would have most people walking out of the theater laughing at that point. And yet I find it so interesting that that's featured on the poster. So it's like the movie producers didn't see anything wrong with it, but apparently this one critic. <laughs> well, and, and I think that criticism is, is kind of silly, honestly, because I think it's, in many ways, a terrifying image that you that you know, you're going to be dangerous. scooped up and, and probably yeah. killed in the process and be turned into right. soil and green. Exactly. Uh, yeah, the we, streets were so crowded. Like, where else would you run? Yeah, it, it's like uh, it wasn't supposed to be some sort of science fictiony scoop. It it served its purpose and it served it very well. Yeah, I mean, and and when yeah. they came out, you know, they were announcing beforehand to the crowd, the scoops are coming. You know, to mm-hmm. to you know, obviously, this is something that's going to put some fear into them and, and hopefully send them away. So right. I, I, I thought they were effective. I think the criticism of it is, is mistaken. Me too. Yeah. And also it's, um, it, it's sort of clunky and heavy and very, very, it's very heavy handed and it's just blunt machinery. There's nothing elegant and antiseptic and science fictiony about it, you know, which right. to me makes it that much more horrifying and repulsive. Yeah. You know? It's, it's uh, a very yeah. blunt instrument. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And again, within the realm of reality. Yeah. Like you were talking about exactly. earlier, Ron. Yeah. 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 Which I think helps challenge you to think of, you know, the possibilities of this could happen, or what if we did face scarcity? How would our society handle it, and what would this really be like? So I always enjoy it when a film makes me think about all the what ifs. Yes, definitely. Yeah. It, you know, if if you walk away from a movie and you're thinking about the underlying themes, uh no matter what else you know you're going to say about the entertainment value of the movie it definitely mm-hmm. succeeds on some level if that's the case yeah, yeah. and the, these movies you know were definitely that was their purpose I mean, that was a purpose they wanted to be entertaining they wanted to make money but they were clearly you know message films weren't they you know and and you know we talked about this a little bit last time when we got together, Ron, uh, about how this is kind of the era in between 2001 A Space Odyssey with the slick, uh, you know, very, very visual movie and, and Star Wars with the very, you know, very slick in its own way, but very much more so action oriented. Uh, and, and, you know, there, there's, there's no, uh, there's nobody who I consider to be the king of the dystopian movie more so than Charlton Heston. <laughs> 
<laughs> well, he was he was in that trilogy of them, wasn't he? You know, that we I think we mentioned all three of them. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and he really was, which is interesting because you know, talk about a guy who had, in a way, like Harrison Ford, where he had he had a, he had a career playing several distinctive different sort of types. You know, yeah. he was he was the. Um, the biblical, you know, movie archetype for for Moses, uh, and then later he was also in the disaster films, Towering Inferno, right? Yeah, yes, I think you're one. right. Uh, um, no, I don't think Towering Inferno. He was, was in Earthquake. Was it, er, er, earthquake. Okay. Oh, that's okay. Towering Inferno was Steve McQueen and Paul Newman. Okay, right. Okay, very good. And and um, William Holden. <laughs> oh. <laughs> William Holden was in just about everything. It seemed like, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. No. There was definitely uh, that. You know, in this era, you know, we've already talked about a few of the movies that are the touchstones for me. Uh, one mm-hmm. we have not done on this particular program, the Omega Man, yet, and I, I kind of would like to oh. do that as a uh, as as a trilogy. I would like to do Last Man on Earth, the Vincent Price version, uh, oh, yeah. followed ah. by the Charlton Heston version, followed by the uh, Will Smith version. Will Smith. Yeah, uh, I, I would kind of like to do that that way. But uh, the other movie that kind of falls into it's it's a very different movie in its own way. But the one that just falls into this era in my mind that I grouped together is Westworld, which uh, Westworld. I did that episode with Andy Leyland a couple of years back. Uh, mm-hmm. But that's another another big favorite of mine. But well, before I go too far afield here, I think it's time <laughs> to ask you guys where we rank this one. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm not going to go first this time. Okay, well, you know what? I'm, I'm going to go. I'm going to go first this time. Oh, all right. Uh, when we when we talked about doing this, uh, we the, one of the first things was, well, where could we watch it? And uh, you know, Darren came up with, oh, it's streaming here for two ninety nine, and Ron was saying, well, that's worth two ninety nine, and and I almost kind of let out my internet chuckle and said, well, I have the DVD, uh, which. <laughs> Which Darren said, well, I guess that's going to tell me where you're going to land on this. Uh, but it, it, it is a nostalgic favorite of mine. There's no question about it. Uh, but just to kind of make you wonder where I'm going to go, I bought the DVD in a discount rack for $2.99. So it's not, not like I, I spent $40 on this. Uh, so I spent the same thing on the DVD that you spent to stream it. Uh, but anyway, it, it is a favorite in its own way. And I think the performances bring this up a level i think the social questions bring this up a level i think the dystopian look of it and the contrast between the haves and the have-nots uh add to the just the overall feeling of of where are we going as a world uh there's just so much about it that that resonates with me that i'm gonna i'm gonna put it as a fairly high jaws too uh, mm-hmm. it's not something that you're going to watch over and over again for the action sequences or anything like that. And if you've seen it, you probably could go a while before you see it again. But I think, you know, once the initial image has faded a little bit, it, it's still something that, that pays dividends if you watch it again. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to put it as a reasonably high jaws too. Well, it's you, you spoke up just as I was opening my mouth to volunteer to go first, Paul. And I think you stole everything I was going to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it to me, it's I love this era of of movies like the two of you were talking about, you know, between 2001 and Star Wars. There was a, a wonderful selection of these types of movies. And you just named several of them, Paul. I know I'd named Logan's Run earlier mm-hmm. in this uh, discussion. Right, 
absolutely and uh, and it's you know planet of the apes is is definitely a notch above that i mean it's uh, i think it's uh, a more of a higher class film but all the rest of those i sort of think of as being sort of that same level of film and i love them all to varying degrees um and this movie to me because i love film noir because i love you know science fiction and uh, because I love the social commentary in this movie. I mean, I got it as a as a young kid, what they were sort of talking about, because I, I remember Iron Eyes Cody, you know, crying on TV commercials when he was standing <laughs> at the landfill. And, you know, so I got what was going on. And um, so to me, I, this movie always has made an impression. But you said it exactly right, which is as many good things as this movie has going for it and it has enough good that people need to see it because this movie is is an important film i think but it's not a jaws it it uh, misses the mark here and there just on pacing and performance and you know the script is not quite dynamic enough the, the directing maybe isn't quite tight enough but it's a good solid jaws too absolutely a movie that you're going to enjoy anytime you put it on, but it's not going to be the first movie you think to put on. And I will jump in and say I'm going to give it a Jaws 1, just thinking about of its type of movie. I think it's successful. It does excellent storytelling for me. I get drawn in and um, appreciate the realism and the challenges that it presents for me. Uh, I like that. The Me too. I like commentary that. is important to you. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, this the a, a craftsmanly. You know, it gets high marks for like as you were saying, Ruth. You know, it, storytelling. It it structures the story well. I I do also agree with what Darren was saying that there are places where the the pacing isn't quite uh, quite as ripping as it should be, or gripping, and uh, in some places, yeah, things with the script. Um, I, I I guess I'm going to lean in the, what Paul would say a very strong two, <laughs> Jaws two, <laughs> for me. Um, the uh, despite a few maybe you know blemishes, I mean it's, the acting is just so uh, so compelling to me of of those two characters primarily, and some of the supporting cast as well. Um, and then the um, that that wallop at the end, it, it, it had a well finish to me that, like yeah, I said, it, it stuck with me for a long time. Uh, it built it. I, I thought it built it up and set it up pretty well throughout the whole movie, distracting us with some other things, you know, along the way. So that the, when we get that and the, and the way they do the reveal, you know, it's inside that factory thing and he's going around and he's trying to track things down. And is if, if I, the way I'm remembering it, if I, unless I'm missing something, it isn't really until you see, the um uh the conveyor belt with yeah. all the little bricks of swirling green on it that you make the connection in your head yeah but it's not uh it's not a they don't they don't um rub your nose in it they don't it, it's almost understated you know yeah. they let you make that connection and and sort of see heston making the connection in his mind or getting the for him i guess it's getting the um the verification in his mind the proof as he would say later um so there's some nice things about it that are that are um Maybe a bit of a risk, a risky to put across that way. They they nail it at the end when he's shouting out so like these people at the end. <laughs> let, let me. Um, I'm, I'm, I don't mean to interrupt, yeah. but just because you brought up the the conveyor belt and something I just hadn't thought of when I was watching it, because in that scene, 
he's kind of making his way across the factory uh and mm-hmm. he actually kind of lays and rolls over to the conveyor belt to get across <laughs> it is there is yeah. is that visual a message to tell you that soil and green is people right there oh wow <laughs> uh, good point a little bit of foresight like i i didn't it didn't even occur yeah. to me until you just mentioned that scene just now and that's why I, before it, it it escapes my memory i wanted to mention it <laughs> you know, and that's one of those things that as a as a storyteller myself, uh, I know that there's sometimes when you're making a story and you're you're putting things into this story because um it just feels like it's the right thing to do at the time. And maybe it isn't until I'm later looking back at it or talking about a story with somebody else that I say, Oh, I see how that thing there really does sort of tie into the theme of the thing, even if I wasn't consciously making that choice at the moment. So it's possible the filmmaker or the director, whoever was staging that shot, you know, put it in there thinking, oh, it's a, just, it gives a certain energy to the scene. But if it's a well-constructed story, lots of little elements are going to maybe wind up playing um, synchronistic, <laughs> you know, uh, parts to, 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 to subtly underscore the theme or something like that. Maybe, who knows? <laughs> I don't well, know. <laughs> I just have to chime in right there, Ron, because Ruth Ruth just saw me smile real big and turn and point at our bookcase because I thought <laughs> you did that very well in Reckoning on Rigel because I didn't see until it, you were almost there what the reveal was going to be. And oh. when it just clicked in my mind, I was like, oh, I remember these couple of scenes earlier that was setting that up, but I didn't realize it then. So, bravo. Yay. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, that, uh, oh, yeah, you, you did give your final uh, rating. I, I, yeah, I, 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 I didn't I, think, I wasn't sure if I interrupted you before you had a chance. I slipped it in there in the middle of all my other getting distracted with my own thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, once again, as always, I want to thank all of you for coming on with me. It is an absolute pleasure every time. Uh, and really quickly, why don't we just kind of wrap up by letting them know where they can find you or what it is you do or, you know, whatever best way you want to put yourself out there to the people. Ron goes first. <laughs> oh, darn it. Okay. Um, well, uh, the best way to find me i suppose is um gosh uh well i'm not running a kickstarter right now but when i do run kickstarters there for my science fiction series trekker that darren was just referring to uh, one of the issues of um and i run kickstarters that are always at uh um, <laughs> trekkerkickstarter.com uh when i'm not running those uh i'm on facebook and i'm on twitter you could find me by searching for ron randall i'm pretty sure um and my uh, the Trekker comics, can you can check those out at trekkercomic.com, where I uh, it's a web comic. You can uh, no 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 entrance fee. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great way to sample Trekker, and then you'll want to buy them all in print. That is true. <laughs> no question. And and Ron also now has a Redbubble store. I'm wearing a Trekker shirt as we record. Oh, that's right. Oh yeah, I did. I Thank did, you. I did see that you, you posted that. I have not purchased anything yet. I apologize for that. No, uh, no, no rush. But I, I, uh, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Oh, just what, what I was going to say is, when Ron does do a Kickstarter, I'm going to be sure to be sharing it on the Back to the Bins Facebook page. So if you follow me on that, you will definitely see something on it if you have interest in doing so. 
Great. Uh, and Darren and Ruth, where could they find you? Because I hear you do something with Trekker yourselves. Oh, we do. <laughs> Trekker Talk. If anybody wants to hear some interviews with Ron talking more about his work or us talking about uh, some of his work over the years, please tune in there. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think that's the best podcast to check out of ours. We do a few others, but we'll just talk about Trekker Talk today because that's where we talk about Ron's work. And <laughs> we talk mostly about Trekker, but we, we talk about a a few other issues from other things from time to time. We did the Justice League and we did his Star Wars work and uh, Star Trek. Star Trek, <laughs> yep, we did Star Trek too. So because um, Ron's worked on lots of other things, but thank goodness he keeps going back to Trekker. <laughs> and there we go. So guys, everybody listening, there's plenty for you to look for. Uh, and in the meanwhile, we'll be back here again in two weeks reviewing some movie, and I'll see you then. Bye bye. I, I promise. I'll tell it soon. You tell everybody. Listen to me, Hatcher. You're gonna tell them Silent Breed is people! We're gonna stop them! <laughs>